except where you are, except your short falls, except everything that is uh, horrifically abhorrent about you, except all the things that are subpar. Because if you don't accept those things, you will never get to the place of wanting to ever rectify them. Acceptance is not submission. Acceptance is not submission. To say that I accept that I'm a weak fish, I'm a weak little shrimp, little slug, and I need to get onto this path of becoming a man and developing these masculine principles. That's not a submission. It's acceptance. It's an awareness of what needs to change. And then you move forward in the opposite direction. You move forward in the direction that sees you become strong. Submission is to say that I'm a weak little shrimp lord, wimp little slug lord, and it's always the way it's going to be, and fuck, there's nothing I can do about it. So fuck it. Fuck the world. Fuck life. Become an incel. That's a little slug. It's a little, just this, 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 uh, this drain, this drain on the world, the resources of the world. But the congruence very much now summed up is just your, your congruence in your external actions that when I say that I'll do something, I actually do it. When I say that I say something, I actually said that I'll be there, I follow through. It's your word, right? It's your word. It's, it's the belief someone would have in you to know that whatever quality of thread I think Adam is made of, it runs throughout all of him. Right, the, the threads, the fibers of his being, they're of one species. Largely stemming from direct, from being direct. That's what I mean. There's congruence and authenticity. Every other principle maps from direct. But his threads are all made up from one source. If I was to cut open his body and his mind, I would not find five to ten different threads that he can swap out and interchange based on the person who's in front of him. Oh, he uses this thread when he's with her, and he uses that thread when he's with him. And so with every particular scenario and person in life, he has to alter his behavior. It's like I get one standard of behavior. I get one set of communication from him, and it is always direct. It's always congruent. It's always authentic. But that's the congruence about him. Whether I like him or not is what I get. That sums it up. So let's move on to authenticity here. This is our internal decision-making. So I talk about what's right. This is where we talk about morals and ethics now. Third principle of sound masculinity, authenticity, what you believe to be right. Your internal compass of what's right. If you know in a sexual relationship, burgeoning sexual relationship, that this woman is presenting red flags of deep-seated attachment and potential also showing if she's not verbally directly stated, but maybe showing signs of previous trauma. Maybe she's acting a little bipolar in certain ways. Maybe she's presenting any form of psychological red flag that would give you cause for concern about how fast and how transparent you need to be about sexual desires here. That you make a authentically guided, right, moral, ethical decision on how to progress the sexual pace. Authenticity is... Well, it's, it's, this one hits me, hits me in the balls when it comes to social dynamics because this is something that I just don't think you hear from anyone else. You will hear this from me every day, all day. Just go back to the last podcast that we did. Authenticity was huge. The corruption of authenticity was huge and my hammering of it was huge in that podcast. Is it the right decision? to go into a sexual relationship with a girl that you know is showing deep signs of attachment off the bat and that's not what you're looking for. 
that you know that you're only looking for something open and free, but you know that she's looking for the fairy tale. Is it authentic based on an internal compass of what's right and what's wrong to enter that sexual relationship knowing that full well? Let's say that you're going to do it perfectly. What would be the perfect way of doing that? As I said before, setting it up right. You guys have one sexual experience together to test the connection, see if it's organic. And then after that, you have the talk to decide, is this right? This is right for us. Are we in the right place? Let's talk about our, right, our relationship desires. For some girls, even one sexual experience is too much. It's a nuance of social dynamics. Some girls present with such red flags on the initial date, the first date, that you can just tell because of the way she talks, the way that she is already hanging off your arm and it's only the first date, the way that she is envisioning and talking about your future lives together and you guys have barely even kissed yet. It's like, is it really the right idea to go ahead and have sex with this girl even if we're going to have the talk straight afterwards or in the next experience? It's probably not right. It's probably not right. Why? Because you've got to consider the pain caused on the other end. Always trying to, and this is where empathy comes in now. You're starting to feel a lot more empathy in this part of the discussion. How's the other person going to feel? This is one of the things that masculine beings lack the most is the ability to understand how the feminine feels. To even consider how the feminine feels in their decision making is so lacking in masculine thought process. It's like you just, most guys just do what they do to fulfill themselves and whatever pain happens as a result is the woman's fault. And if that's her fault, that's her responsibility. It's not mine. It's nothing I could have done. You know, it's such a, it's such a common masculine philosophy if not consciously said, but unconsciously acted upon. That I'll just do as I need to do, what I think's best, but I won't ever put myself into her shoes. I will not ever put myself into her heart and feel as it feels to be her, to feel as she feels, to feel as she feels. Now, or the auth- I'm starting to bring the empathy principle in as we're talking about authenticity. They're very much coming hand in hand because we have to talk about ethics and morals here. Is it ethically right? Is it authentically right? Is it authentic? Now, authenticity is not just ethics and morals. It's also about what you think is right based on yourself. How about this? We can flip it. We can flip it. What if you're faced with a very sexual experience? Just keep it on the sexual examples here. What if you've got a very sexually experienced girl who's pushing your revs? Ah, Ah, now, 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 now. We've spoken about this in a lot of social Q&As back in the day. Earlier this year. Back in the day, earlier this year. Often the case, I have a lot of soft-shell crabs come across my content, come to work with me as clients. Soft-shell crabs, what is that? That is a very cautious male. Very cautious, very timid, sexually unwilling to make direct moves, unwilling to make bold moves, unwilling to be upfront about how they think and feel, but more so in, in a very physical space as well, not just psychological. It's also a soft shell crab in that just timid, right? You could use the word frigid, but it's more timid. It's more like hesitant, hesitant and untrusting. In untrusting of the ability to have a good experience, to just let go into the experience. There's a good one. Soft shell crabs, are, uh, like the soft shell is the part of that, that saying there. 
because of their soft shellness, they think they're going to get hurt so that they do not risk. They do not take a step forward. They do not try something bold and something new. It's a very soft shell crab mentality. And oftentimes where my soft shell crab clients have come across a far more developed crab, far more developed woman, particularly sexually, who wants to take them into Candyland, wants to take them down a bit of a uh, coconut oil adventure, soft shell crab backs up from that, not willing to let go into that. The reason why I brought this up was authenticity. Is it authentically right based on where you are and who you are to make the decision you're about to make? If you're a soft shell crab and your sexual appetite is something vanilla, it's not strawberry shortcake in the middle or roasted macadamia on the far end of sexually filth, but you're sexually uh, sexually bland, vanilla, as I would say, and you're feeling this rift of authenticity within you going that this woman's saying to do this, to do that. You know, I've had a lot of guys say, it's like, she wanted me to spank her, she wanted me to choke her, but it just didn't feel authentic. Didn't feel right, even though that's what she was asking for. Didn't feel right. Good questions. Good questions. Where's the line of acknowledging that you're just not willing to step beyond your comfort zone, not willing to try something new, versus this really just doesn't feel like me. It doesn't feel authentic to me. It's a great question. It's a very hard question for me to answer if I don't know you. If I don't know your lineage, if I don't spend hours with you, if you don't know you. Because really, what would be the answer to that question is if you were to look back on this experience, if you're faced with it in the moment, would you have regret? I think regret, even though it's not perfect because it relies upon uh, retrospect, regret relies upon retrospect in order to ascertain whether this was regretful or not you have to get through the experience. So it's not a great guidance, but it's very informative. It's, it's very revealing. And you could hypothetically think about it in which that, for example, to have that example I just did before, if you've got a social crab and he's with a very sexually experienced woman, she's pushing his rev, she wants him to do a lot more to her than he's feeling comfortable to do so sexually. The take, for example, one of the most easy, one of the most common ones, choking. A lot of soft-shell crabs are not comfortable choking a woman to the point, near point of unconsciousness that she's asking for while having sex with her. A lot of soft-shell crabs are not comfortable with this. Would, would you look, if you're one of those people, would you look back? Would he look back after that experience, say he didn't do that because he felt like it wasn't right, wasn't authentic, goes home, journals on it that night, meditates under the stars that night about it and goes, is there any shred of regret that you didn't explore that? Is there any part of you that wanted to know what that was like or to see what that would have been like? If you can say without a shred of a doubt that no, I didn't need to do that. I just it's, it's not even a part of me that wanted to do it. Then I think that's an authentic decision. But if there's even a shred of you that said, ah, yeah, I kind of did. But, oh, but why? But then you're going to sense rationalizations. Ah, oh, but what if I didn't do it right? Oh, what if I didn't do it right? Now it's time to think about some limiting beliefs. We started thinking about some self-rationalization. What if she wasn't going to like the way that I did it? Uh, now you start, nah, here we go. Now we start to pick apart this idea of authenticity. And we start to think about these, is it, is it, is it auth- inauthentic or is it me just being afraid? You know, the soft shell crab versus a legitimate authenticity concern. Those are two very different things. And I think the regret 
tool is a good one to just ask. And actually, it's something I use in my own life all the time. All these start things, when I start thinking about authenticity, one of the supreme and sound principles of masculinity is that when you are to maintain that principle of authenticity, you always do what you feel is right. That's it. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to that, but that is exactly what I probably should have started the principle with. That is the foundation of authenticity. I do what I feel is right. When faced with a sexual potential, a sexual opportunity, a sexual relationship, I do what feels right. When faced with a family member, friendship, colleague, uni, random person on the street, I do what's right. If it's an old lady walks onto the bus and there's no other seats, I get up because I do what's right. If I see someone struggling in whatever capacity or aspect of life, do what's right. and, And you guys might say, well, do what's right is very subjective. It is, but it isn't. It is, but it isn't. It is because it is very subjective because no one no one agrees fully on what is right. But I feel like this idea we have in Australia called being a good bloke, right? just being a decent person, while it seems to be wavering at the moment, it seems to be uh, dissolving at the moment, it seems to not be a thing anymore. For most of my life growing up, there was a unsaid, agreed upon set of human behavior that we deemed good blokeness. Being a good bloke. It's a good bloke. Just be a good bloke about it. I could be a good man about it. I'd be a good person about it. I just don't be a shit bloke about it is another way of saying it. To open the door for, for a woman who's coming in, to hold the door, to uh to walk a woman back to her car, to it's it's like these these things, these small things that make up the fabric of life. To help an old lady walk across the street to hug a random person who looks like they're having a bad day, to say to someone, are you okay today? To say to someone, what's going on with you? To extend the hand, to be the person that walks forward. And just even at the most smallest gestures, these tiny gestures, to, to be the first person to say, hey, how are you? You know, that's what I'm saying. How's it going, mate? These tiny fabrical gestures make up this body of what I feel is what I call human decency, being a good person, subjectivity of doing what's right. And on those small fabrical levels, they form large, these large bundles, these large bundles of material that eventually make up who you are. And so that when it comes time, game time for big decisions, for do I, do I put down my dog because his liver is exploding? And yes, while I could have his liver removed potentially and it'd be a very costly, but not just costly in terms of finance, very costly in terms of suffering to him, would it not be right to just inject him lethally and put him to sleep and put him out of his misery? You know, these decisions, these these authentic decisions. Now that, again, to some of you might seem like common sense, put the dog out of his misery. Don't, like, if it looks like it's uh even if you, they were to attempt to save him by taking his liver out or his gallbladder from exploding or whatever it may be, you know, it's like he might have six months, 12 months maybe after that. It's going to be a pretty shit life after that as well. There are people that in this world that would still do that though because of their attachment to the dog. I, I, I had a woman, I, know, I met a woman in the park the other day who her dog got viciously mauled. Uh, she has like a greyhound and it got mauled by this, uh, I can't remember what it was, it was a crossbreed of like a, Newfoundland something. 
And anyways, it got viciously mauled. Like it's got half its face torn off, basically, leg broken, just in an absolute state. And and the woman was is but it was the woman's light and joy. And the woman decided to fork out, we're talking like multiple cars worth of money to have the surgery done to fix this dog. And it's it's just Yeah, I just shake my head. It's like you're going to delay, you're going to perpetuate the suffering of this dog so that you can continue to feel good. That's basically what's happening here. Because the dog is going to have a really shit life. Like It's not even functioning. It's going to be a vegetable after that point. You know, it's brought to within an inch of his life type thing. And it's, it's authenticity decisions. These are... These are decisions where in the big times, where we're talking about life and death now, we're talking about things that really affect people's existence. Make no mistake, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. One fiber leads to everything. If you've got one thread of you that is inauthentic, it's going to mutate and develop into much larger threads that all of a sudden you find your entire being is made up of this unquestionable, no, sorry, made up of all this questionable material. It was one little thread. Now all of a sudden your entire being is made up of questionable material that you end up becoming the person that decides to not put down your dog out of mercy, but decides to perpetuate its life and have it live in real misery just so that you can feel good and not feel alone yourself. You know, you talk about a dog situation that you talk about in romantic sexual relationships when you know that a relationship is not good for you, when you know the relationship is not good for them. If you can see that you're growing, but your partner's not, and you know that, that this needs to end because you've had the discussions, you've had the time, you've used the empathy, you've tried your best to try and help her to see this, that maybe there are some behaviors, some psychological mindsets about her that are really non-serving and you can see it's non-serving and you just can't live around that anymore. And so you've given all the time and the patience to have the conversations with her, but she's still just not awake to it. She doesn't want to change. And you realize, okay, this relationship's no longer serving and you know it's not but you don't end it and you don't leave it because of your fear of being alone. Is that authentic? No, it's not because you know what's right. I think for the general human being who hasn't grown up in a war-torn country that hasn't grown up surrounded by domestic violence and has not had their systemic, systematic systems of function corrupted by extreme examples around them, just a general, generally amicable upraising and that the human software system was not corrupted from the beginning by sexual abuse, trauma, domestic violence, war-torn country, etc. In those scenarios for the general person, average person there, I think that we all know what's right. Loosely, but if not loosely, generally I should say. Generally, you know most of us have a good heart. Most people have a right heart. They know that it's not right to walk by an old woman who's getting smashed by a thug and to not do something. Even if you're too afraid to intervene and to try and throw your body in harm's way, but to go across the street and grab someone who you think would be, or to get on the phone and call up triple zero, what it may have been, to do something, to not just walk by. Most people have that moral set point, that ethical set point. It's very interesting in, as we just mentioned the word morals and ethics there, how most people's moral and ethical set point has been corrupted during COVID. That's very interesting to me because it's been, it's been shoehorned in under the guise of fear 
and they're willing to corrupt their morals and ethics because of a existential fear, which is proven not to be founded upon. Like it's, it's not evident. COVID itself is not an existential threat and for most people. It is definitely not an existential threat for society. It's nothing worse than a bad flu for the most part as far as society is concerned. There are much bigger problems. 37 actual problems that society in Australia is much more concerned with than COVID in terms of the death rate. So it's... Anyways. Anyways, let's not get back to COVID. Being authentic is doing what you feel is right. Doing what you know is right. Not even just what feels right, what you know is right. Sexually, romantically, platonically, all your relationships. It's really like sleeping well. I think about think about tough conversations with this. Conversations that need to be had. Parents, family members, when there's angst, when there's bad blood between you and someone else, when there's harbored blood between you and someone else, harbored bad blood, you're just not willing to let it go. It's like, in, I think in most people's hearts, you know when you're holding onto a grudge and it's not serving anyone. You know that it would be much better to forgive this person and just move on. Authenticity is knowing what's right and doing what's right. It's really an evolution from immature to mature state psychology to reach to a place of going, I choose forgiveness first. Forgiveness is a huge offshoot root that comes out of this giant log of authenticity. How can you forgive someone if you're not authentic? How can you forgive yourself if you're not being authentic with yourself? For all the people that have wronged you, for all the people that have wronged you and for all the people that you've wronged, at some point, if you want to live a good life, you're going to have to forgive. Not only forgive them, but forgive yourself. You're all human. You all make mistakes. None of you are perfect machines. None of you are the moment in perfection. You're all so imperfect. We are all so imperfect. I think that's just what you learn is the process of social dynamics as you embed yourself in the fiber of humanity, how imperfect we are, how much we all suffer, how much we all stray from the path, how inauthentic we can be. And I think one of the biggest parts of inauthenticity, of being authentic, one of the biggest parts of being authentic is to acknowledge your inauthenticity. It's like the greatest step to getting on the road of authenticity is to acknowledge when you're not being authentic. Being authentic, I think, is much less about having to be this perfect being of always making the right decision, but more so just being aware when you're making the wrong decision. When you're, and now this all feeds back into congruence and direct, when you're not being direct, when you're being indirect, when you're being incongruent, was that an authentic decision? Did that come from a moral set point, an ethical set point that you knew was right? Or was it not? The way that you treat people in life is authenticity. It's founded upon authenticity. You know, some people always, I'll get questions from people say, you know, how do you keep people coming back? Start being authentic. How do you keep people coming back? Start being authentic. Start showing people, you say, who the real you is. The real you is the you that you are comfortable with. The real you is the you that is unfiltered. The real you is the you that isn't out there playing games with people, trying to achieve things with people. The real you, if you want to get down to it, 
It's just this moment right now. When you set yourself, when you delete yourself and you set yourself free, you know, that's when the real you can come out. And these terms you have to dive a little bit deeper into because they seem to be contradictory and paradoxical. Good, they should be. Through the paradoxical nature of understanding who you are, you realize that you are no one at all and everyone at once. It's the greatest paradox and contradiction of life of all. To be no one at all and everyone at once. And that's the real you. And if you could convey that to someone in a real one-to-one relationship, if you could stand in front of someone and look them in the eyes and to convey to them that I'm no longer Adam and you're no longer Jenna and we're just together as one. And the epitome of social dynamics. The epitome of authenticity. It's direct, it's congruent, it's authentic. And now we get to empathy. But before we do, I just need to get a little more water. So give me a second. Okay, getting to the principle of empathy now. Covering of empathy. So we talk about sound principle of masculinity. Direct, congruent, authentic, always covering of empathy. Covering with the E. Empathy, very simply. To feel as she feels. To feel as he feels. To feel as another feels. To come from a viewpoint of wanting to understand them first. Seeking to understand them first. To get out of your own way. Put yourself in them. This is what empathy really is. And it applies at all facets of life. And it applies so deeply to the point of which that I feel like most masculines miss this. It's like it's one of the most obvious carrots that could be taken, yet people pass up all day. It's like how much better your relationships would be if you could just do that one thing, feel as she feels. Before I say that to her, before I do that to her, before I do this with her or say this with her, how would she receive that? How would she feel as a result of that? How is she likely to respond to that? You know, just, just asking those questions would vastly and tremendously change your course of action. It's the, way, the way that I know this, like it says with such confidence, is that when I'm breaking down interactions with clients and we're reviewing their relationships or reviewing, uh, if not initial interactions, but casual open free relationships, sexual relationships, sexual experiences with girls, and we rerun the mistakes and I say, hang on, so before you before we go part through whatever you're about to say or about to do, how do you think she's gonna feel as a result of you saying that? How do you think she felt? And I get their masculine perspective, and it's like they can barely conjure up anything even coherent. Masculine beings are so non-trained, untrained in the ability to feel as another does. You know, it's always self-focused, it's always self-directed it's only moving in one direction yet you see the complete opposite in feminine feminine are very strong at feeling as the man does to understand not even just the man but to feel as others do feminine are very strong at feeling as others do and i think this is very inherent because they are birth givers they literally have the capacity and will experience for a lot of them the ability to birth something from within themselves you know it's it's, it makes sense that their empathy levels are much higher. That women are able to tap into that emotional space a lot easier than masculines do. But I don't think that masculines lack capacity. I think they lack training. Because I was once there. I used to not know the first thing about empathy. Or even to even consider in my sexual relationships that before I did or said something, to think about how it would make her feel first. To feel about, even if not in sexual relationships, but in family relationships, in confrontational situations with colleagues, co-workers, etc., clients, clients as well. How will they feel before I do this? 
It's such a simple fucking question to ask. But to, to have the acuity to stop before you do something and to ask it and then answer it, it's a whole different level. It's a very different level of social dynamics. And it seems so easy as we're here on the podcast. It seems so easy and uh, so simple and it seems like something you can just brush over. But the reason why it's not, I'm not brushing over it is because of the people I work with and how dumbfounded they are when they will tell me about a sexual experience they had with a woman and why it didn't go very well or some, there was a red flag at some point. And I just go, well, hang on, before you got to, before you, before you, let's say, before you decided to take off your pants and <laughs> think about what exactly, before you forgot to take, forgot, before you took off your pants and went off to take off hers, right, had you gotten connected with her heart? Did you have a feeling for where her breath rate was? Did you have a feeling for her looseness in her body or the tension in her body? Did you have any understanding of how she felt within her body? Referencing a particular example where uh, a guy was sexually progressing with a girl and they were in their sexual relationship. It was, it was I think it was this, maybe the first or second time. And as you know, he was getting undressed and he thought it was all good. It was very amicable. It was very physical. You know, they're making out. They're in the bed. He takes his pants off and then he goes to take off hers and then she goes to put her hand on his. She's not comfortable. So he stops there. Good, obviously. But he was very confused. He's like, I thought things were going well. He's like, I thought things were progressing really well and she was actually really pushing on me. It's like she was very prized at that moment, very physical with me. And so I thought it was only the natural thing. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's okay. That's fine. That's very rational of you because you're just thinking about it one way. Now think about it from the second way. What did you know about the tension in her body? Talk to me about that. Sorry, what? Sorry, what do you say? Give me the tension in her body. <laughs> I didn't even. I didn't even check that. Can't even tell. They'll say, actually, I don't know. Say, I don't know. So, so how much time had you spent getting in connection with her heart rate, with her breathing rate? Right? How much time you spent looking in her eyes and just getting lost? And not, I don't mean that getting lost in terms of a Disney way, but I mean literally dissolving of the ego, dissolving of yourself to just literally be no one. And everyone at the same time. Zero, nothing, can't answer that, don't know what the hell you're talking about. It's often the responses that I get from that. Okay, there we go. That's why you misread the moment. You thought just because you guys were making out that you were kissing and that she seemed to be pretty into it, that she was ready for further sexual progression. I bet you if we went back in that moment and you could have put a strapped a Garmin watch on her, strapped a heart rate monitor on her, see where her heart rate's at, get a read on her breathing rate, get a schematic graph on her breathing rate. How balanced is it? Is is it showing a nice congruence to her breathing? A nice, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not even just congruence, but you know what I'm talking about? A um, rhythm, rhythm to it is the word I'm looking for. What's the rhythm of her heart? What's the rhythm of her breathing? I bet you if we would go back in that moment based on what she did, that they would have been all over the shop. Just because a woman is acting a certain way, just because she's pushing on you a lot, does not mean she's comfortable. Many girls push and act in a certain way because they think that's what's expected of them, not because that's what they're truly comfortable with in the moment. Spoken about this a lot in previous com- in uh, previous podcasts. Particularly younger girls, right? girls that are sexually inexperienced, trying to live up to the hype. Guys affected by this as well, trying to live up to the hype but they're not comfortable and they're not sitting within themselves. An uneducated male 
is not going to be able to recognize that, okay, she's pushing her own revs here, pushing her own revs. And therefore will not have the empathy and will not be able to enact the empathy to be able to slow her down. Whoa, what a revolutionary concept for a masculine being to slow the woman down when she's getting sexually up on him because she's acting out of a place that is not congruent within herself. How would you know she's not being congruent with herself? Uh, get heart to heart. Get chest to chest. Get back to, get back to chest. Get in a spoon. Get a read on her breathing. Get your forehead to her forehead. Get a read on the way that her chest rises and falls. And you'll find out very quickly whether she's feeling congruent or not. Whether she's feeling authentic or not. Now give me just one second, my friends. Someone's just about to walk in the door. And uh, I'll be right back with you. Thanks to that, my friends. Just had to let someone in. So getting back on here with the empathy point. If you get a read on someone's body, the physical tension in their body, you find out very quickly where they're at in their mind. Someone that has a tight body has a tight mind. Someone who has a loose body often has a loose mind. It's very rare to see an incongruence between the two. It's very rare to see someone have a loose mind but a tight body or a tight body and a loose mind. It's very rare to see that. So are you in tune with the moment? Present. Empathy relies upon the nutrient of presence. In order to be empathetic to someone, you actually have to be there in the moment. You actually have to be able to understand them. You have to be able to tap into them. Be able to understand where they're coming from. Feel where they're coming from. I keep using the word feel. The word feel and empathy are basically siblings. You, you can't really separate the two. They're, they're joined at the hip. They can join twins. That in order to have empathy, you must be able to feel. It really is the definition of empathy. So... <laughs> So that's why I keep saying, feel as she feels. Feel as she feels. If there's one thing you learn from this podcast, one thing you take away in terms of a masculine being trying to up his level of performance, feel as she feels. When you're there in the bed with her and that things are getting sexually very amorous, things are getting really heated between you two and that you feel like things are reaching a boiling point and you want to start progressing things even faster and start to take over clothes off, start to physically progress around her body, start to touch this, finger this, push into that, penetrate into there, right? As you start to think those things, those things, the opportunities start to present themselves as potentials, just check in. How does she feel? Feel as she feels. Oh, actually, I'm noticing that her breathing is kind of all over the shop. I'm noticing that as maybe you're on top of her and, you guys were in full mount. You guys were in full mount. She had you in a she had you in a full guard <laughs> for jujitsu. Alright, maybe you were in half guard. <laughs> Hopefully you weren't inside mount. But you know, you were uh you guys were real body to bodies with each other. And maybe you just took a moment just to think about how's she breathing right now. You know, just for a moment. And that's just training wheels. By no means am I saying that this is something you should be doing as you become practiced and experienced, it's just something that as you become practiced and experienced, you just do. It's a subconscious thing that, of course, you would only progress to the next stage if you noticed that she was loose and comfortable not only in her mind, but also in her body. And that until that looseness was achieved, that you would not progress to the next point because you know it would be a fail. You know you would get the hand. You know you would get the hand pushed to the side or she would, she would say, hey, just not yet, not yet, or slow down, slow down. This, this is what I'm kind of talking about is that because I'm not even, I don't expect anyone who's listened to this podcast to be in the extreme range of rapists or sexualist abusers. That's not my audience at all, right? I don't assume any of you are like that. But you don't have to be a rapist or a sexual abuser to make very simple mistakes 
that can really break the trust between you and a girl. I don't, I, it says, you, the standard of masculine experience that a feminine should receive should be to the level of which that, when it comes to sexual comfortability, her revs should never be pushed. You should be so in tune, so practiced, so experienced at reading where she's at mentally, physically, spiritually, in the looseness and tightness of her freeness with her sexual energy, that you could go there and go, she's ready for this, she's not ready for that. Based on the looseness of her tension of her muscles to the way that she touches you, carries with you, the way that she looks at you. you you've been so practiced, you've been so aware and attentive to all of these different things that you would know that actually right now, it's probably not the best time to try and unbutton her jeans. Actually, right now is the best time to unbutton her jeans. It goes both ways. To be able to progress, you need to have empathy. To be able to regress, or if not even regress, but just to maintain and hold, hold line, hold position where you are, requires empathy. It all requires empathy at the end of the day in order to make the right moves. Now, am I saying that you have to be a master of empathy in order to get these things done? Absolutely not. It doesn't actually require much. As I said before, what's the key behind empathy? Feel as she feels. To simply tune in to how that person is feeling in that moment pretty much tells you everything. I've always said, go with the looseness, go with the tightness. Tight body, tight mind. Tight mind, tight body. If I feel any tightness, if I feel any tightness in her body, it speaks to a psychological tightness. If I feel any psychological tightness, it speaks to a spiritual tightness. The only reason why she's mentally or psychologically tight is because there's something about the energy within her that is distrusting of the moment, whether it's distrusting of you, distrusting of herself. And many many other factors, I'm sure, but those are the generals. So please, please act with empathy. Please bring empathy into all your sexual experiences. Slow things down. Yeah, I always say to her... um, I always say to you guys that probably the most, if not the most important thing, there's two most important things <laughs> that does work. But, you know, what does she need from you the most? Presence. What does a woman need from a man the most? Presence. She needs you to be there in the moment with her. Why? So that you could be empathetic enough to be able to understand her, feel her, feel as she feels, the way her body moves, the way that her mind moves, the way that her spiritual energy moves. Is it tight? Is it loose? If it's tight, slow down. If it's loose, push forward. It's very simple. It's not a hard game to play. It's not even a game. It's just the state of humanity, of human interaction, of human relationships. Feel good, push forward. Don't feel good, keep it there. It's, it's, it's not hard things to contemplate. It's very hard things though to enact if that you are stuck in your mind, if you are wrapped up in balls, threads of incongruence, indirectness, inauthenticity, inability to be empathetic with her. So locked up in your limiting beliefs, negative self-perceptions, and egoic attachments to the point of which that the concept of empathy would not even arise because you're battling so many demons within yourself. And now the question arises, do I take care of those demons first? Do I put my demons to bed first before engaging in a sexual experience with a woman? Or do I allow those two things to harmoniously harmonize alongside each other? It's a great bloody question. And I think it's a sliding scale. I think the scale is that if you're, say, a 10, let's do scale of 0 to 10, or maybe, yeah, okay, 0 to 10. 10 being completely free, 0 being completely burdened by demons, 5 just being an average person in the middle. 
What I would say is that as you slide harder to demon land, you need to reduce the amount that you are engaging with other people and that you need to spend more time working with yourself. As you slide further on the scale to the right, towards 10 of being freedom land, being free within your own physical, mental, and spiritual energy, the more you want to engage with other people and the more you have capacity to. I can't give you a black and white there because I don't know you. I don't know how dangerous. Like if I, if for example, if I had someone who just came out of jail because of, and they've been in jail for 10 years because of sexual abuse and they've got so many demons, I'm definitely not encouraging that they go ahead and try and work with their demons while getting into new sexual experiences. No, 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 no. You're a really far down demon land. Let's just do a whole bunch of work with you first. Then we will start to introduce engaging with other people. You know what I'm saying? Slide and scale. Know yourself. Engage with yourself. I really wish I had this particular point when I was younger. And while I was while I was lacking in all these principles when I was younger, which is why I had to invent them, or I had to carve my own philosophies around being direct and good and authentic, not that I made those words up, but that I had to carve my own philosophies around them. The empathy one is one that I, I really wish someone had told me about. Not that I didn't have empathy. I didn't have enough of it, certainly not when I was younger. But it's one that I can see that because it was never mentioned, it was never something that I was consciously aware could be developed, something that could be engaged. Whereas being direct, it's like through popular media, you would see the ramifications of not being direct. You know, you just see on TV shows and whatnot when guys are just being indirect and you see it never works out. You see uh, when guys are being incongruent and they try and lie their way around situations or they they say something and then they do the other thing and it doesn't work out. Like you see this across tons of just popular media, movies, TV shows, that type of stuff. But the empathy one, to not feel as she feels in a really romantic sexual space, you just never heard of that. You've never seen that. You would never see a movie or TV show of a guy having the conversation with himself going, okay, tonight, I'm just going to breathe with her. I'm just going to get into her heart. Because getting into her heart and breathing with her is the most important thing. Penetration is a reflection point. Having sex is a reflection point of what was already said and what was already agreed upon between you and her, which is that there is a mutual trust, understanding, connection that transcends a physical and mental and has stepped into a spiritual world. A spiritual world that you don't even need to get hippie with. A spiritual world, and all I mean by that, when I talk about spirituality, is just what words cannot describe. You don't have to bring Gandhi into it. You don't have to become a hippie and you don't have to do DMT to understand that there are some things in this world that cannot be described with words. That is what I refer to as spiritual. And you can leave it right there and you can put that in the bank. You don't have to go any further with it. That right there. Whatever cannot be described with words, which is the trust, which is the honor of sexual connection between you and her. No amount of words will ever describe that. No amount of physical actions will ever describe that. Only in the present moment will ever describe that. And there is your empathy. There is your empathy. We've been some places here, my friends. We've been some places. And now I think I wanted to, uh, we can talk about empathy in, you know, in, in all the other principles, I've opened up the discussion to not to a lot of non-sexually polarized examples. But I think with the empathy one, I'm going to leave that right there. I don't want to talk anymore about it. I think 
that to me is the epitome of what empathy is. You can draw your own conclusions about how you would apply that in other relationships. I think that's exactly where I want to leave empathy. And now I want to talk about, I want to start to bring this podcast to a summary in a way, talking about the role of masculinity in, in education, in terms of education of next generations. I brought up Dylan before and his little sister, Ariana. This is really when I probably should have brought, I mean, you can, it applied to being direct as well, but it's like the reason why I shook his hand and exchanged names and took the time out of my day to learn about him is that he's already met someone in his life, I can say for sure, that's helping to guide him on his path. If I can be another influence in that path, He's got such a better shot of life. The women that he's going to meet are going to have such a better shot at receiving better. Him doing better, having a higher level of performance of masculine energy because he had influences from other higher levels of masculine energy that were not going to teach him to be indirect, incongruent, inauthentic, and just quite frankly a piece of shit. Right? To lie, cheat, and steal his way through life. To... to he, he already understood the principles of activity. And, you know, that sounds like such a fundamental thing. Like, of course, all masculine beings should have a base level of fitness. Of course, all human beings should have a base level of fitness, but particularly with males that their primary role evolutionary was to hunt, right? Was to hunt and provide. They should have an above average level of fitness. They should not have excessive levels of non-functional mass, aka body fat. Not to say that they have to be 5% shredded show models and we can, and now I think we're going to start to talk about the soft, oh, we've got to start to talk about the softer side of things as well. I don't want to miss that. So we'll get to the softer side of things. We'll talk about emotional vulnerability in a second, but just talking about the lineage of masculinity, passing it down. Women, when women ask, where have all the good men gone? It's like they're all dead. That's what the feminists say. Now what I say is that they all died and now they're only replaced with boys who look like men. But that cycle is not forever. It's a generalization, but it's pretty apparent at the moment. But at the same time, it's just a cycle. It's a cycle that can be ended at any moment. If you get a mass of masculine beings that all of a sudden start to go by these principles of being direct, congruent, authentic, covering of empathy, and you see this dispersed and filtered out, filtrated out through society, what you find is that it only takes one or two generations to really turn things around. You know, we're not that far removed from the men who went to war in terms of mass war, in terms of you got 16-year-olds signing up for World War II, that type of thing. You, you, we're not that far removed from a society that still respected that biologically there is only male and female and that anything else beyond that is a subjective decision and well, I respect that decision, but let's not get it twisted. There are only two sexes male and female. There is no unknown. There is no whatever pronoun, other pronoun you want to use. In terms of genuine biology, in terms of if you get down to a microscope and you look at the chromosomes, you look at XX and XY, that is what you'll find. You will not find an unknown chromosome that is, a, that is unknown to scientists. So if you want to make a psychological decision on saying that I don't accept that i don't accept that i was born of xy or i was born of xx and i would prefer to be 
XY or XX. And that's your decision. Okay. But let's make no qualms about what the true, true nature of biology is. If we, we are not so far removed from a time in society where that was pretty normal, where even mentioning the idea of people being able to decide their gender, you would have been laughed out of the room. You would have been like, okay, man. <laughs> it's like, ah, that's if you talk to someone back from 1940, 1940, 1945, who's got legitimate problems in terms of we've got a real existential crisis. We've, we've got nuclear weapons here. We've got, uh, we're not back in World War II, but we've got invading countries. We've got Japan could potentially, if things didn't go our way, let's say that, well, actually no, nuclear weapons were being developed back then. Sorry, my apologies. Specifically Japan. Let's say Japan got the A-bomb. How about this for a second, my friends? Let's say Japan got the A-bomb first and decided to drop it on Australia. We're pretty close. We're pretty fucking close to Japan. If they wanted to drop an A-bomb, Australia would have been a good place to drop it. Just to send a message to Melbourne or Sydney. Just to say, hey guys, we can fuck you up. I'm sure there were plans. I'm sure there were plans. Everyone was in a race for it. Mutually assured destruction, okay? And uh, we only had to give them a taste before things settled down. And that's effectively how World War II ended. The Japanese got a taste of the A-bond and all of a sudden everyone said, okay, not this again, never again. And it was uh, horrific. I do not condone. I definitely do not condone the dropping of the A-bomb. I have been to Hiroshima. I have seen the damage. I have been through the Hiroshima... World War II Museum, and what's inside that museum is horrific. Things that, things that will give you nightmares for a long time. Jesus Christ, seeing bloodies, bodies melted to the roofs of houses. It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Even just the, the, the aftermath, or the, uh, what do they call it? The, it's not just the aftermath, it's the external radiation. Like, so the people that weren't at direct impact, but people that were thousands of kilometers away that still experienced radiation effects and what happened to them you know it's just it's very messy stuff anyways that's real problems people dropping a-bombs that's real problems you deciding your gender it may be a problem for you but it's not a problem for society like it's not a existential threat okay and i'm sorry if that pisses you off but i'm just calling it what it is so actually i'm not sorry it's what it is there are levels to this to ideas of problems there are levels to things that matter and so And so, well, I'm trying to, the reason why I came up with that point was that we're not so far removed from a time in which that masculine beings were of that caliber of, I'll lay down my life for my country. Literally, lay down my life for my country because tactics back then and technology was so rudimentary that the tactic of the day was you're going over the top. Literally, that was it. The, the commander in chief would blow a whistle and everyone gets their gun and just runs over the top of a trench and runs at the other guys who got over the top of the trench and was running at them. And they're just spraying and praying. That's literally the tactics of the day. You know, a little bit of flanking here and there if they could, but particularly in World War One, that was the primary. Like launch some mortars, drop some bombs potentially from the planes, but mainly we're just going to dig trenches, jump over the top, run at each other and spray guns at each other. And just hope that we don't die on the way there. Didn't work out for a lot of people. Millions of people died. But it was the caliber of those people. Can you imagine being one of those people? Can you imagine being in World War One and World War Two? You were in the trenches. Your commander-in-chief. You've been there for months upon end. Getting trench foot. Just eating shit. Just 
misery, absolute misery, having to fight off rats every night just to save your little biscuit and crackers, little crackers and cheese. And then all of a sudden, and you've been away from your family, you've been away from your loved ones, you had a girl you're going to marry at home, maybe you had a kid, right? Maybe you had all these prospects, you were going to take over the farm, but no, you've been sent to the, the, the trenches of Germany, you've been sent to the trenches in France, and, and all of a sudden the whistle blows, and the commander-in-chief blows the whistle over, and he knows, and you know, you guys are fucking looking at each other, that most of you aren't coming home. Most of you aren't coming home. Waves and waves of you. It's going to be months before anyone here goes home. And I mean that literally, as in goes home even in a body bag. Most of you are just going to be cleared off the side of the field until we can recover your medal, uh, recover uh, your name tag, your dog tags. They blow the whistle and you got to go over the top. What, what character? What fiber? Now, I'm sure a lot of them were shitting themselves. And I know that people that didn't go over the top, if not, depending on, there are accounts of people who didn't go over the top that got executed unofficially. But a lot of them court martialed, right? And whatever happened after that point. But, you know, there's there's some pretty hectic shit that went on then. Hectic shit. And it doesn't even really describe it that well. But I'm, what I was trying to say is I'm sure there were people that were shitting themselves. And But even though the people that were shitting themselves, but they still went over the top. And for the people that weren't shitting themselves, that still went over the top and faced their impending doom. All because they thought they were doing it for the right reason. All because they did it for a cause that they were of such moral fiber and moral character that I'm laying down my life for my country to provide the freedoms for the people like myself today. We're not that far removed from those people. That was nine, what I'm describing there is the 1940s. You know, we are 80 years beyond that. That's, you know what the average median life expectancy in Australia is? It's between 82 and 84, depending on the year. Somewhere between 82 and 84. We are only one full generation of someone's life away from World War II. As bad as things may seem right now, in terms of the lineage of masculinity, how collapsed masculinity is now, we're not that far away from it. You know, while we are definitely in the saga, in the stage of that thing I said before, of, you know, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times. We're currently in the stage of weak men creating bad times because of what happened before that. We were in good times. The only way that you get weak men is as a result of good times. Who created those good times? Strong men. So now that we have had good times, things have been good for the last 30-some years, a lot better for the last 80 years since World War II, but particularly the last 30 years, things have been good. Real good. Which is why I've got so many weak men have not been tested, haven't been required to be strong. You know, at least on a very macro sense. Of course, we're all responsible in our own individual lives to be strong, to walk a path, path of strength, path of warriorhood, to test yourself every single day, to become the best version of yourself all day, every day. All right, that's the responsibility of all people. Just because you don't have a war at your front desk, or just because you don't have a, a war outside your gate right now, it doesn't mean that you don't push to become stronger every day. You guys know I say this all the time. I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. The reason why overtraining, the reason why overdiscipline, is in case that a war did appear. It appears that war has appeared, which is a psychological one outside, as people keep describing. Personally, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that we're... I don't like calling it a psychological war because it, it lacks empathy for the other people. It makes us think that we have to kill the other people who don't think the same way as we do. I don't like that. But I will say this, people are at war with each other. I'm trying to move beyond that. I'm trying to help people see beyond that. Nevertheless... 
we're not that far away. We're not that far away. The memories are not so dead. The collective consciousness has not been generationally wiped yet. We have not had several generations, like year, 80 year stages of people that don't have masculine principles. You know, a lot of what I've learned is from looking up at, from people that are actually, that weren't even alive while I was alive and they weren't even alive while my grandparents were alive. So some of the people that I look up to, me, that I've learned from, Miyamoto Masashi, a legendary samurai from the 16th century, Lao Tzu, ancient philosopher from 2000 some years ago, 2500 years ago, Marcus Aurelius, right? Epictetus, Aristotle. Right? These people were alive thousands of years ago. Miyamoto Masashi was roughly 500 years ago, 400, 400 years ago. But still, that's a long fucking time ago in terms of like someone I could have had access to and even more so for the other philosophers. Been learning from them. They're still there. They're still enshrined. They're still enshrined in my education. Still learning from them. Still learning from people that were alive 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago, Lao Tzu was writing shit down and I'm learning from it today. And then you think about people that were alive in this time. I think about people like Wayne Dyer. You know, I think about other people that have instructed my life. Absolutely, Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, just dropping names here. Dropping a lot of names here. Uh, we'll be all day here if I keep dropping names. But all the different people that, fighters, musicians, artists, anime creators, right? There's... Uh, so many people that I look into now that are alive in this day that are still walking forward, even nutritionists, even people like Paul Saladino, uh, Carnivore MD, Mr. Animal Based. Even someone like him is someone that I look at and go, there's strong masculine principles behind him in many ways. In many ways, I still see strong masculine principles around, even in this day. And there's so many more. So many more I could keep reeling off. But suffice to say that Masculinity, strong masculinity is not dead. It's not generationally wiped. While there was a push to wipe it generationally, do I know if it's conscious or not? I don't know. I don't know if there's a conscious push to wipe sound principles of masculinity out of our consciousness, collective consciousness. I don't know. Seems unlikely, but the end result appears to be the same. Whether there is a mass group of people trying to reduce men into weak puddles of sludge, I don't know even if it was just a byproduct of all of this excessive government overreach that is going to reduce masculinity into a weak pile of sludge. However, it is accepted. The result is going to be the same. And I'm not happy with it. Don't like it. Why? Who suffers the most? The women and the children. The people that suffer the most from a lack of sound masculinity are the women and the children. Women and children need strong men the most. Strong men need strong men. Strong boy, boys need strong men. When I talk about children before... The only way boys learn to become strong men is by seeing other strong men. And so when you see all this bullshit online, all this bullshit hype on TikTok and on Instagram, all these influencers on YouTube that are just flashing their money, flashing their money and the shit that they got and the girls that they're banging, right? It's like you think that that is the principle that your young child, your young boy, 12-year-old should be looking up to? No, the person that your young boy should be looking up to is a fucking samurai that went out and fought people all his life and served his lord. Are you talking about Miyamoto Masashi, who even didn't serve a lord because he hated the feudal system and decided to go rogue, became a ronin. Right? But even just the principles of being a samurai, you know what the word samurai means? Serve. Servant. 
you think that even this that conception of being a samurai is to be a badass. No. The definition of being a samurai is to serve, is to serve your feudal lord, to be in service of others. And there is an entire samurai code. One once mentioned to me, notably, that within the samurai code and within what a lot of the principles that samurai stood upon, you never hear the word love. And someone once asked me, said this to me, do you notice that you never see the word love in any samurai philosophy? Like in terms of their general standing principles. Like it's never like to love others or to practice love. You don't see that in samurai philosophy. And some of you might go, of course, they're chopping people's heads off. (laughs) Samurai do not go around chopping people's heads off for no reason. But, and I said, yes, that's very interesting. It's very interesting. Why is this? Why, why, why don't you see the word love directly in a lot of the samurai philosophy? And he said, because it is their philosophy. I'm like, hmm, tell me more. And he go, everything that they do is practice of love. Their discipline is love. Their commitment to serving is love. It's like everything that they do to right down to the way that they tie their hair, to whether they go through the routine of putting on their body armor, to the way that they train, everything that they do is all love. It's just this absurd commitment to absolute perfecting everything of their art. Right, that is a samurai way, and it's all—it's their love for it. They would not do if they didn't did not love it. I'm like, that's beautiful. I'd never even thought about that. I love that. I love that. Also, pointing on there is that role models are big generational teaching of masculinity. Now, this is—I said at the beginning of the podcast, and I'm glad that I haven't forgotten this. I'm glad we're here now. We here now. Masculinity is not a caricature of Hercules. Masculinity is not a YouTube influencer and the masculine role model is not a YouTube influencer with 2.1 million followers and living the life, living the plane, jet plane in the Bahamas, sipping on Martini's life, right? That's not who I want my son to be. It's like when you think about ideas of masculinity, I think it can be very much rooted into the question of who do you want your son to be? Who do you want your daughter to marry? Who do you want your daughter to have a sexual experience with? You know, I said the one with the, the marry one's a good one because a lot of you people will relate to it, but I noticed that I know a lot more of my audience will relate to who do you want your daughter to have a sexual experience with? Because marriage is a different thing. It conjures up different ideas, but who do I want my daughter to have a sexual experience with means more to me. It means more to me because the foundations of human connection are based on sexuality. Everything that we do in life is based on our sexual connection. And that we, when a woman, in a woman, when a woman is first learning her sexual experience, so I should have said girl there, that's why I was hesitating. When a girl is learning to become a woman and is going through stages of sexual progression and sexual evolution, sexual experience, she places all of her trust in the masculine being. It is only as she gets older that she learns to withhold some of that trust, depending on how bitter, encrusted, walled up, shielded up, she becomes as a result of negative experiences. She may remove that trust. It's not all women, but it's a lot. It's not all though. It's a lot. They had to get there though. For a woman to become bitter, scorned, encrusted, she had to get there. It only takes a couple, one or two experiences to reinforce a pattern of bad masculine energy. 
collapsed, poor, weak, masculine energy that treated her wrong didn't even have to be necessarily such obvious sexual abuse. It could just be the lack of a good experience. It doesn't have to be such an abusive experience, but just the lack of receiving great experiences can start to form and plant the seeds of distrust sexually between men and women. That's why it's so important that boys learn quick and learn early. Because as much as the legal system would have us say we're only ready to have sex at 18, or depending on the city or the state you're in, in Australia, some of them say 16, but in generally speaking around the world, 18 is like the agreed upon number. Despite that, we all know that we reach puberty much, much earlier than that. that. And what is puberty, my friends? Sexual hormones turning on, preparing us for childbirth and child and procreation. You know, for most girls, depending on the girl, you're looking at roughly 13, sometimes a lot younger. Sometimes a lot younger, they're going to start their menstruation period. And for guys, hormones can start turning on a little bit later, generally speaking, of guys. But and I've always found that interesting. But let's not break it. Let's not break that down. But if you're a, if you are someone who studies that shit, feel free to hit me up. Please tell me why. But but generally speaking, boys' hormones, sexual hormones, turn on at least one to two years later on average. And but we're looking at that roughly 11 to 13, 14. That's what the years we're talking about. We're talking about that that little space there, outliers there, chunky middle being roughly around 13. That we started talking about people are ready to have sex. Start to explore those sexual experiences that the desire to do so would even be there. Chemically, neurally, physiologically. So these people need to learn early. Boys need to learn early. My first sexual education from a older masculine being, I believe, was my stepfather. I believe because, yeah, my father and I, I've separated from my father since I was like three years old. And that's a long discussion. We can talk about that later on. But my first sexual education from a masculine being in my life, I remember when I was much younger, like seven, eight, I remember... As you do as a kid, asking, I remember I was at my dad's place actually with my step family, and my older stepbrother was there, and I have a couple stepsisters, and their boyfriends were there, and stepmoms there, there's a whole bunch of people in this house, and we were watching like the cricket, or like an Australia Day, or something like that, and or Boxing Day, and I remember saying to them in an ad break, you know, where do babies come from? I remember, it was like a genuine question, like you know, that age, you don't fucking know, and so I remember generally asking, and everyone just ran out of the room, and the girls were cracking up laughing because they just ran out of the room, and they just left the men, they left my dad and my older stepbrother to answer the question, and they were just like, uh, uh, they had no idea what to say, they did not know how to handle that conversation, I was like, why is everyone freaking out about this, I just want to know where babies come from, like I was like genuinely, like come on guys, just give me the answer. Because you don't have access to Google at that point. This is back when I was. This is like in the year, literally the year two thousand. This is like twenty one years ago. And uh, and so those two weren't really able to answer it. I don't remember getting a concrete answer from any of them. That's like kind of the first time I kind of brought it up. But then it wasn't until when I was like thirteen, year seven, that my stepdad, because we had just started sex ed. Sex ed starts at thirteen in Australia back in my day. Anyway, it might start sooner now. I don't know. I don't know when it starts, but it started in the last year of primary school for me in South Australia. 
And man, was it awkward. <laughs> and was it awkward. Sex and back in the day, like you would watch these films, like they didn't actually show you any actual sex. It was mostly just old school 1970s documentaries talking, you're just seeing interviews of people talking about having sex and you would study the reproductive systems and, and you learn how to put a condom on a banana and that type of thing. But there was no training. It was no training. There was no explanation of technique, of mentality, of mindset, this breathing, this heart rate that I talked to you about in terms of managing sexual pace, managing sexual energy in my other podcasts, managing sexual appetite. None of this is, I'm sure it's still not discussed at high schools, but it's all abundant on my channel here. Anyways, I mean, that's the reason why it coincided with that, that my stepdad had bought me uh, he noticed he caught me and my mate Roy at the time uh, buying what were called Ralph and FHM magazines back in the day. And we used to run absolute military operations. We're talking about just like scouting out the uh, the local the local time savers, which you can think about as just like a look, kind of like small supermarket, IGA type thing. And we would like walk around for hours in the IGA trying to debate who was going to buy the magazine. And, and you know, there was nothing pornographic. It was literally just girls in bikinis. But to us, or in lingerie, but it was just like, it was the biggest deal of the world. And we would spend hours trying to choreograph how this was going to happen. And we would fuck. And I remember the first time I did it, getting that FHM magazine and getting like some bullshit stickers bar or something and just trying to buy it and look at the girl behind the counter. It's like, having some fun tonight, boys, are we? And we're like, ah! <laughs> and we would get the magazine we get it back we run out we get it on our bikes and we sprint and we just fucking leg it fucking leg it out of there and just be so proud of ourselves for buying this this magazine <laughs> oh man it was so good such good times <laughs> multiple times as well oh, i still remember how much pressure though the pressure who was gonna buy it and yeah <laughs> It's like, you didn't even get to see a nipple in it. Like the most you saw was like just implied nudity. Yeah, it was like these like car magazines or men's magazines type thing. And uh, and so I remember my stepdad had noticed this. And so he sat down, he bought me a sex ed book. I remember it was a sex ed book on uh, the safety of sex. And it, again, it wasn't inst- it wasn't like the Kama Sutra. It wasn't like instructional by any means. There was never any, I never received any guidance on sexual technique. That was just not there. It was more about safety. It was always about being safe about it. It's talking about AIDS, talking about uh, herpes, gonorrhea, talking about this type of stuff. You know, using condoms. Just, that that was basically what all these sex ed sex ed books would talk about. Uh, yeah, that type of stuff. And so that and so he had the discussion with me about that. And I remember how fucking awkward it was sitting down with him, and he gave me the book, and he's like, "Yeah, so make sure." But, but to his credit, though, to his credit, I love that he was open about it to the point of going, "Listen, I notice you're having some girlfriends around now, and uh, you know, it's just obviously sex is going to become an, like an option, something you two are probably going to want to get into. Just want to make sure that you guys are safe." Now it's not like now here's here's what you should do, son. Here's what you do. Here's what you fucking do. It wasn't that. <laughs> which would have been very beneficial, but I found my own way through it. Um, shouldn't have to, though, is the point. Should should have some pretty good guidance. Should have some pretty good courage, encouragement. But at least it was encouraging to the point of not trying to shut it down and just being open to it. I'm definitely grateful for that, for sure. And so that was, that was, what, I, that was what I dealt with. But 
where are we going with this? Where are we going up with this? Oh, they're just the lineage of what, what what's available, what's available to young boys. So, you know, throughout this this podcast series and through these videos that I do on this channel, particularly social Q&As, I receive so much feedback from young males going, I didn't fucking know how to go down on a girl until I watched that video you put out of man. It's like, I didn't know that there was that level of technique, that level of consideration. I didn't know it was actually that simple. I just wasn't aware of it. It's like, no one talks about this. It's like, you, you can't get, this. so many times I hear that, you can't get this shit anywhere else. And so there are other places, I'm sure there are other, I'm sure there are tons of other channels, there are tons of other places on YouTube where you can go to get sexual technique, but are they going to deliver it like this? Are they going to deliver it from a point of lineage of, with mindset, lineage with mindset of masculine growth? Is it going to come with a bit of a tribal sense to it, of which that when I'm discussing sexual appetite, sexual techniques, sexual mindset, I'm doing it from a place of that I want you to become men. I'm not doing it from a place of I want you to click thumbs up and drop comments. I still want you to click thumbs up and drop comments. It just helps the video in the algorithm to get sent to more people. But I'm not doing it because that's the number one metric. The number one metric to me is that someone would watch that and give the feminine being on the other end a better experience, that they would actually help to transform themselves and traverse the journey of immature to mature state psychology, boyhood to manhood psychology. That's what's most important to me. It's, it's like, why? It's, yeah. I was going to say, why else would you make a video on how to go down on a woman? It's like, of course, like it's, it's a, it's a hot catchy title, get tons, it'll get views, you know, that type of stuff. I don't give a shit about that. If even five people watch it, but the five people that watched it actually go ahead and apply those techniques and give the woman a better experience. And that overall, their experience is going to lead to him becoming a man. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Like that's all that matters. And so those when I get those messages, that's why I would make content like that. It's really important because how how do boys become how do boys become men? Boys become men by being taught by other men. <sighs> like you can say, like because like for me, I. I wouldn't say that either of my father figures, my either biological father or my stepfather had, I've got to be careful my words here. They, my dad even less so. My stepdad played a bigger role because my stepdad was more present in my life. I actually lived with him each day for many years, but our relationship ended when I was 17. So, and so, and I know there are a lot of. If there's a childhood by childhood child behaviorist listening to this, they're going to go, "Well, that's most of your formative years anyway." It's yeah. I like that argument on paper. I don't like it in real life because I wasn't installed with direct, congruent, authentic principles covering with empathy through my first seventeen years of life. I wasn't. I was installed with other principles. I was installed with other good morals and ethics and treated very well. But those specific principles, I was definitely not installed with the principles of sexuality that I teach to young. Uh, masculines now i learned those after 17 so when people say that you know as a human being you're set from the moment you're seven years old it's like i don't, I really disagree with that i really disagree with that you know i think there is scale i think like i said before if you are closer to the demon land scale zeros the closer you are to zero the harder it is to change but the further you are away from a zero being in the this demon world of domestic violence kidnapped, fucking abused all your life or whatever it may have been, sex trafficked. You know, the further you are away from that, the easier it is to change. 
the closer you are to it, harder it is to change. But I, I just don't, I don't buy into this idea that you're set as a human being from the moment you're seven. I think if you work with enough people and you see people transform themselves enough, you can disillusion that. I can definitely throw arguments back at that uh, pretty confidently. And so what I know is that, and I've seen this with older men as well, that older men can learn to change. They can learn to change. It might take longer. might be much harder than changing a seven-year-old, absolutely. But they still can. Never going to turn that light out. Especially when it comes to sexual principles. Sexual principles need to be taught real early. These all these principles, direct and good, authentic, covering empathy, need to be taught real early. Always best if they can be taught, taught early. And now I guess this is uh, the part of the podcast that I really wanted to sum or to wrap with, which is when I talk about the caricature of masculinity or what masculinity really is, comes in many shapes or forms, but really to me, it's just principles. It's principles. And that one big part of masculinity that's not talked about is the softness, the emotional vulnerability, the ability to cry, the ability to express your emotions in a full array. For a man, for a man, I don't, you know, I was going to say for a man, for a masculine being to not be able to express their full array of emotions is immature. It is psychological immaturity to hold and withhold your emotions. To say that I will not cry, I will not emotionally express, I will not tell someone how much pain I'm feeling or how much fear I'm feeling out of fear of retribution, out of fear of disapproval, that's immature. It's, it's immaturity. It's, it's, not, it's, it's indirect, it's incongruent, it's inauthentic, it's certainly not empathetic because it's not empathetic to yourself. Do you know how much women just want you to open up? I know you hear it all the time, like in mainstream media, women that say when you see sitcoms and whatnot. Steve, I just wish you would open up to me. You know, like, you hear that shit, and it's like, okay, it's, it's, okay, that's not the way of conveying that. What she should have said was that, listen, Steve, I feel like you're harboring some stuff. I feel like there's a space here to be opened up with you, and I want to let you know that it's comfortable, it's trusting. You trust in this space. I want to hear how you feel. I don't even know what's going on with you. I just want to know. I just want to know. I just want to know. That's how that conversation should be positioned, not, well, don't you ever open up to me? No, it's set up a space, set up an environment for him to be open. And then, okay, so I'm, I was talking from the feminine perspective then. Let's shift it for a, Let's just go back for a second, which is that with men that aren't willing to enter that space, even when it's set up, you know, even when it's there, even when the, the woman you could feel would want it from you, you don't even need a written permission slip. You know, oftentimes in, if not new experiences with women, uh, in terms of like first experiences, but maybe a few experiences afterwards, you know, sometimes I'll just outright just tell them, you know, this is a demon that I used to have. To be honest with you guys right now, I don't really have any demons. I think I'm at a point right now where it's like, I'm far more, I'm just, my demons are other people's demons. It's like, it's, my, my heart is at peace. My heart is calm. My dad is currently in hospital after shattering three of his vertebral discs after falling from a ladder. Now, my dad uh, should have died a long time ago, long, long time ago. And I don't just mean that metaphorically. When I was roughly seven or years old, seven, even younger, might have been six, six or five years old, he was 30-something, I think. Yes, 30-something. And he was diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor said that he only had a couple of weeks couple of weeks at max they didn't believe him like my fam my step family my dad didn't believe the doctors 
And they said, fuck it, we're going to go through with the chemo anyway. Because they basically said, like, there's no point in attempting to do anything here. The cancer's progressed, it's advanced too far. Even if you try to do chemo, it's not really going to work. Yeah. He still went through the chemo and uh, beaten and defeated it. Defeated it for, for some time. And, uh, you know, you could call it a miracle if you're a religious person. But I think it's the strength of will. The strength of will that he had a desire to continue on living. He then relapsed, or if the word is went back into remission, I'm not sure. Uh, Hang on a second. Okay, my friends, we are back. My apologies. I'm sure you didn't have any break in the action, but for me, I've had to take like 10 minutes off because my laptop and the monitor just freaked out. Basically, I thought I was going to lose the entire session. Like we go for like three and a half hours and everything just froze. I was like, no, 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 no. I think it's just because at the moment, my monitor is just sucking up too much juice from my laptop's processor and my laptop is just getting old. Okay, so talking about my dad right there, the remission, I think that's what I was talking about. I'm sorry if I'm getting that word wrong, but basically sometime later after his first bout of cancer, he uh, experienced another bout of cancer and apparently that one was supposed to destroy him. I'm not sure how many years later that was, but I think it was maybe five to 10 years later or something, somehow got through that and somehow got through another round of some type of therapy. And throughout, since then, he's had both his hips replaced. He's had a heart bypass collapse because his heart stopped working. Uh, he's, he's he's been through fucking everything. And then now he's currently, just as of last week, he, he was getting ready to sell the house, his other house. He doesn't live in me. He lives in Victoria. And he fell from a ladder or something or fell from a high place and destroyed three vertebrae, had punctured organs and internal bleeding in his chest cavity and and had got so he got sent to the hospital, had pneumonia in the hospital. It's like I don't I just don't understand how my dad's alive. Adjusting the laptop, there. I just don't understand how he's alive. I don't understand how he's still going. And uh, my dad's a doctor, by the way, and he's just worked himself to the absolute bone. And actually, I believe that's the reason why him and my mum split up when I was so young, was because actually he was never home. He was taking house calls at uh, you know two a.m., one a.m., eleven p.m., or whatnot, and just wasn't there for my mum and uh, me and my brother. Now there are other there are other things. Um, maybe, maybe not worth, maybe I don't want to bring them up. Maybe I should, maybe it's relevant. Maybe it's important. Listen, I don't want to make this a therapy session for me, but there are, let's say this, there are reasons, there are other reasons why my mom left my dad at such an early age. Part of which was the, not just the neglect to her, but the neglect to me and my brother. I will say that. I will say that. Now, since then, my dad has done everything to try and mend that relationship. And my mom did everything she could to make sure I was not aware of that until I was much older. So she did everything she could to not infect my mind that my dad was a piece of shit at that stage in time. And she just allowed me to have an organic relationship with my dad. And my dad did everything past when I was maybe a few years older, five or six, uh, because they split up when I was three. He, you know, I'll see him every second weekend and I never had any idea that there was a stage of my life as a young kid that my dad didn't want to have anything to do with me and my mom or my brother. <clears throat> you know, it's like, I want to tell the full story, but I just don't feel like this is the right place. I don't feel like this is the right time for it. It's not really relevant to the story. The reason why I'm telling this part of the story is just the masculine influences, the father, the father figures and so I and so from that's why I started telling this. That's right. That 
I had a very loose relationship with my dad for most of my life. You know, once every second weekend, child visit type thing, spend the weekend at his place. Then as I got older, as I got more into upper school levels, once every term, once every you know 12 weeks, and then it's once every second term, and then it's once every year, and then it's once every two years, once every five years. And so that's kind of how our relationship has been. And, you know, we've been in contact during that time, but it's like an you know, email once a month type thing, you know, phone calls here and there on birthdays and Christmases. So I, my dad did not have a... He had some role, I would say, of the role he did have of influencing me in my life, the martial arts was number one. Dad was the third Dan uh, black belt in Shotokan karate and uh, led the local dojo down in Bendigo at the time. And hey, if you listen to this and you're from Bendigo, then you probably know who my dad is. And so, And so that, from a very young age, though, discipline, stoicism, right, go to karate, the way that we would hold ourselves at karate, the way that I would see him treat everyone else, you know, I, I absorbed a lot of that. You know, the way that we would watch, when we did watch movies together, we watch martial arts movies together and the way I would see him attend to the birds, he had his big bird collector, you know, I would absorb a lot of him as kids do, you absorb a lot of him. And it was the stoicism. It was, you know, is that when I was, when he was out doctoring and being a doctor all day, I'll be at home trying to do push-ups, you know, I'll be out at home trying to run around the the farm. Not the farm, but the you know the uh, big plot of land, and I'll be trying to just do as much physical activity as possible. I'll be practicing my kata, I'll be practicing my karate moves, and that's how of stuff. And you know, to impress my dad, and and so like it's like I've listen, I've always loved my dad. I've always loved my dad, even if we've not had a tight relationship. Uh, and it's just been more and more distance as we've gotten older and older. And then moving to my stepdad, my stepdad probably had far more of an influence on me in terms of. I've always said uh, the ability to think through things because Andrew is very logical. Andrew is very uh, cognitive processing type, very analytical. And, you know, he, he's definitely influenced me in that way. He's definitely helped me to be a, become a better thinker in terms of just rationally working through things because I was very much a hothead. Like I said, I was one of those 20% that very, very emotionally driven, can now lose my temper a lot as a younger kid. Don't have that. I've I've revolutionized, alchemized that part of me now. I'm very in control of my emotions now. But back in the day when I was a young kid, uh, fist first. <laughs> fist first was the way that I used to be. Settle things through violence used to be the way that I used to be. I get angry first. So not anymore though, but that's the way that I came up. I definitely acknowledge that. And Andrew was the complete opposite. Andrew was pretty calm for the most part. And so I definitely, balance, I definitely benefited from his more calming energy, more balanced energy. But at the same time, Neither of my parent, neither of my father figures ever spoke to me about the journey to becoming a man. None of my father figures ever put me through rituals very directly. I think the closest thing was my dad taking me through karate. And I think that was his indirect way of putting me through a ritual, but it was never framed in that way. It was never, this is what we're going to do to make you a man. Or this is, this is part of your discipline training to become a man. You know, this is going to teach you these these virtues or these principles of hard work and caring for others and not trying to hurt each other's but be ready to be able to defend others you know it was not so much framed in that way it was very unsaid and i definitely didn't have any of that with andrew there was never any discussion of the path to manhood uh with andrew and yes i don't fault any of them for this because if i went next door the same would be the case if i went to any of my best friend's place they didn't have any discussions with their father figures on what it meant to become a man this was, there was no idea. It was just unsaid. 
And so I learned most of my principles of becoming a man from other men, mostly from men that I had to either see on video or read from in the books and the annals of history. And that's what I think is so beautiful about human beings in a way is that we can convey education through such means that I can, I can listen to a podcast with Joe Rogan interviewing a man who was uh, abducted and kept prisoner in, uh, where was it? Was it the Caribbean? Whichever country it was. I can't remember his name. But, you know, there's, there's, been some, there's been some crazy guests he's had, uh, Joe's had throughout the years that just blow your fucking mind. I can listen to him speak to all these crazy minds, these astrophysicists to uh, world-lifting, achieving athletes or world-achieving world athletes. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that I've taken from Joe the most. You know, more so than Joe, it's Joe's ability to encourage thought from all lines of thinking that I probably have taken the most from, to be encouraging of all lines of thinking. And then, but then I look at someone like Wayne Dyer, who teaches me about the, Lao Tzu, to the ways of Lao Tzu. He introduced me to Lao Tzu, introduced me to the ways of the Tao Te Ching. This, this way of living in accordance with nature, living in accordance with the world of 10,000 things. And then I create my own philosophy as a result of that. And so it's like, I've, I've never looked to any one particular masculine source and gone, that's who I need to be. I've just looked at what they have to offer and make it me. I make it a part of me. I take, I synthesize it and go, what I like about that. I like the critical thinking part. I like the harmony with nature. I like learning from nature. So now I spend every day in the ocean or when I see a tree, I go touch a tree. You know, it's like small things like that. And you incorporate this to part of your being. And then, and then looking at, and then so I can just apply this to all the other different masculine figures that I've looked at in other, in other different respects. So looking at someone like Gary Vee, looking at just the, the hard work immigrant mentality, the hustle work mentality, right, just to get shit done. You know, you look at someone like that, you can look at, I really just go on for days and days, so I need to stop this. <laughs> Otherwise, we're really going to get here all day. But I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning big names there, names that everyone knows, but also just there have been so many people on my travels that I'll just ask random questions, I'll just conversate with, and they'll teach me something. They'll teach me something from a masculine viewpoint. Yeah. And I think we started this entire point with that it just it has to be taught. It has to be passed down conversation has to be had and oh that's right that's right the uh, i'm not sure how we got onto that point but the emotional side the vulnerability is something we have not finished that's what i want to finish this podcast with yeah learning to be emotionally vulnerable is definitely not something to it definitely not something appreciated definitely not something encouraged in this current state of society although the push is becoming the push is coming if you get into the right spaces you start to go to places that practice some mindfulness, some awareness, some encouragement of emotional expression, such as Seeds of Ember here in Adelaide. Cheeky plug. They're not running at the moment. Shout out to Reese and Sarah having their baby very soon. And uh, they're taking a break from these. And Seeds of Ember, if you don't know, is just a spiritual connection group. And I say the word spiritual, you know, it's like we have one hour of deep physical movement, yoga, tai chi movements, deep breathing, loud expression, yelling, roaring, that type of stuff, shaking all out. And then an hour of a sound bath where all these instruments lie down and there's like connection at the end with chanting and a lot of hugging and people cry a lot. It's a lot of expression. You're a full, full array, as I say, expressing human capacity, human capacity to full array. Let me get my words right there. Expressing human capacity in a full array. Yeah, there we go. And so, so places like that and then all of a sudden right there, it's actually very acceptable. For, ma- for men and for masculine beings to cry and to yell and to fully express themselves. And if you get into men's groups, you can see this appearing more and more. But it's definitely not mainstream. It's, def- it's, not, it's not what you're hearing a lot every single day. 
and I'm not sure if they're practicing it in school. That's when you know something's really mainstream, when you start to see a course being taught on it in school. Don't think that's the case, but it should be. But it should be. I think that's why martial arts are so healthy for masculine beings in particular, that you can just get all your shit out, right? Particularly if it's a martial arts in which that something like jujitsu, where you get humbled immediately, where it's like someone who's 40, 50 kilos lighter than you can choke you out and strangle you to death. And it's like, okay, okay, need, need to shut up here. I need to shut up and just learn. You know, they've acted with so much bravado. And so, and so the emotional vulnerability to me then transfers into your sexual ability. In order to be, in order to be sexually competent, you need to be emotionally open. Right? Sexual competence is not just your ability for PPM, just be at how many pumps per minute you can go in with her. Right? Sexual competence is the ability to emotionally experience the full array and also to allow that space for her to open up this window into the world of emotions of her that she's like, could I even let that go with him? It's like, do I feel trusting, comfort and trust? Do I feel comfort and trusting in him, comfortable enough to let go, trusting that he can lead me into that space to be the full me, to be the real me, to be the true me, to dissolve me? Like, can you inspire that space in a woman? Like, that's sexual competence in a sexual space because it's not hard to have sexual penetration. What's hard is for someone to let go into a full body orgasm. In order for someone to let go in a full body orgasm, you're going to have to unlock a whole bunch of psychological metrics, a whole bunch of psychological doors that if they weren't previously open, they need to be trusting that you could walk through. It's like not everyone is so hard gone that you have to do weeks or months of work to even unlock the door to get them to sexually open up emotionally. Sometimes the door is already open, but they're still standing there going, eh, I'm not sure if I'm going to let you in. And it's like, I need to see what you like first. I need to see what you're about first, see if you could even handle what's going on there. Yeah, it's like, because sometimes I think people uh, breeze by this full body orgasm. They breeze by the sexual connections where you just open up into the full array of emotions. And we said, that's, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's very confronting. It's extremely confronting to see a woman have tears during a full body orgasm, to see her clamp down with her nails digging into your back and it doesn't even feel like like she's not doing it out of pleasure. She's doing it because it's a coincidence, a conglomeration, combination of not only sexual pleasure, but also her releasing something very deep within her fibers, within her fabric being, that there's a emotional release. It's like when you, you, you hit the red, you hit the red line while you're going to town on the bag or you're using battle ropes or the sledgehammer, but particularly in martial arts and you're just going to town on the bag and you're just doing roundhouse after roundhouse or you're just throwing elbows, spinning elbows, everything you can throw at the fucking bag and you've gotten to the point where you can't even breathe anymore. You can't even breathe, but something's still operating you and you're still just digging left after right, knee after knee, elbow after elbow and to the point where you just physically can't move anymore and you can't even breathe and you just collapse on the floor. You know, that true red line, the ecstasy of a true red line experience is not just the fact that you yes you got to uh, physically exhaust yourself and that there's a lot of pleasure in that i'm sure there's a huge dopamine result uh, response as a result of physically exhausting yourself but it's also the emotional release because when you in order to go red line you have to go somewhere in your mind and you have to turn it off it's like you have to you have there was a there was a limiter in your mind that said that it's like a self-preservation limiter that is also, you know, that's not a physical sense, but it's something more than that as well. It's not just a self-preservation to make sure that I don't damage my limbs or anything like that, to make sure that I could not pass out so that in case that a predator came by, I wouldn't just die. 
they wouldn't just have a free lunch. But it's also there's an emotional limiter in order to physically unlock yourself fully. I see this when I take people down for cold plunges. It's like most people are not willing to fully let go in the ocean. Even in the cold. The cold really helps, forces them, because it becomes so apparent when you're not letting go in the ocean. Like the more you fight the cold, (laughs) cheeky scooter, the more you fight the cold, the more it fights you. It's like the harder the experience is in a cold plunge if you don't let go. The more tense you get, the more you squeeze your hands and you squeeze your body, the harder the experience is. So you have to learn to let go. There's an emotional limiter that has to be released. And only when you do release those emotions can you experience what you really came for. And that's when I now we tack, tack back into the sexual experience. What do we all come for in a sexual experience? Let ourselves go. We don't come to a sexual experience to come. We don't come to a sexual experience to be pleased. We come to a sexual experience to let go of ourselves. It's one of the last remaining primal rituals between human beings that has been largely unaffected by governments, by political overreach, by by the judgment of outsiders. It's like what you do between your four walls and your bedroom is what you guys do. Whether that involves whips, chains, coconut oil, or nothing at all. Whatever it involves is that that's your one space, kind of remaining space in this world to just do what human beings do. It's so primal. It's so ancestrally aligned and connected. And that's what I mean by it's if you're walking into a sexual experience looking to achieve anything else but a full release, like you've already lost. You're already you're already so far off the path. It's like the the orgasms, the coming, the the feeling afterwards of feeling sexually pleased or feeling like that you did a good job and she, she's she's received everything she needs and she's gonna want more from you. You know, all that shit, just throw it out. Throw it out the fucking window. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you fully let go of yourself. Because until you fully let go of yourself in a sexual experience, you will never allow her the ability to do so. Right? This ability to let go of each other is a mutually combined experience. If one person is still holding on to themselves, the other can't. It takes... It takes both people to let go of the vines in order to fall into the river. It's like the, the vines are connected to both of you. Learn to let go. Learn to focus on release. Emotional release. I wish I had been... I wish... Well, I, I wish. It's fun. It's an interesting... It's a term that we all use. I don't regret anything. I really have no regrets in life. Like, you could put a gun to my head. Say, Adam, do you have any regrets in life? If it's true. I mean, if you're lying, the gun gets pulled and there's a bullet in it. So you put a gun to my head right now. I don't have any regrets. I really interpret everything as just a lesson. So the term I wish doesn't really sit with me well. It's just some programming there. But it's like, if there's one thing that in my early sexual experiences I would have loved to have been taught, which is that, hey, Adam, focus on emotional release first. It's like focus on really letting go of yourself emotionally. It's like if today you feel super aggressive about it, be super aggressive about it. Obviously within respectful realms, like don't cause any harm. But if you want to, if you if you're feeling animalistic about it, you're feeling fiery about it, let it out. If you're feeling soft about it, if you're feeling very emotional and vulnerable about it, let it out, let it be. And this is where we, we need to talk about this in the emotional vulnerability of things. That I think so many so many women are surprised when they're with me about how much I just want to feel them. That I just want to get into a space with them where I'm just hold them. 
You know, I don't, I don't need penetration as a marker of success with them. What I need is to feel my heart in connection with them. I need to feel my heart beat against her heartbeat. I need to feel my eyes in her, feel as she feels. Say, like I want to feel that emotional release with her before anything else comes. Because anything else that was to come before that, if I was to slide myself into her, it's like it's a, it's a shred. It's a, it's a shed of a shred of what it could have been if we had psychologically and emotionally released ourselves first. And you have to be vulnerable to do that because you don't know what's going to come out. You don't know what's going to come out. A lot of times what comes out is a softness that you did not know was there as a guy. When guys finally allow themselves to put down the shield, what they don't realize is that actually they're made of flesh, flesh and bone, blood. And what that infers is that you're not invincible. You're not made out of iron. That actually you can feel fear. You can harbor you may harboring may have been harboring demons that you just did not know about. And it's why is this distraction mentality focus on the Herculean ideal? And that way you never have to deal with the vulnerability. Because if you're always focused on having to be in this rock solid statue of marble psychologically and also physically, but particularly psychologically, then you never have to address all the weakness within you. You never have to address all the fear, all the pain, because your mother wasn't there when you were younger or because your father abused you when you were younger or because your best friend stabbed you in the back or you know your girlfriend cheated on you or whatever may have been there, whatever demons you may be harboring. If you're always distracting yourself, you never get to it, right? That's probably why you distract yourself because you don't want to get to it. But in order to be emotionally vulnerable with someone in the moment, particularly sexually, in order to embrace softness, it's like it's one door. Emotional vulnerability is one door. And behind that includes your pain. And until you clear out that pain, it's the hurt locker. Until you clear out the hurt locker, until you deal with that pain, reckon with it, will you ever be allowed to allow the other soft elements to come out unabated? Confidently, in a way in which that, okay, if I'm down here on the beach with this girl and we're going heart, heart, I want to get heart, heart with her, I want to get eye to eye, and I just want to let myself go. And I trust that if I do cry, it's crying out of jeer. Say that again. If I do cry, it's coming out of joy. And we said jeer because I said tear and joy. If I'm, walk, if I'm walking myself and lying myself down to this vulnerable experience of her, to know that it's okay to cry, but I'm not crying because it's of some shit that I'm dealing with my mother, but I'm crying because the beauty of the moment with her. That because that's just how I'm feeling right now. And that if a tear trickles down the side of my face, I'm not going to try and rub it away. That as I'm staring with her, staring deep into her eyes and a tear falls down my cheek, my instinct is not to rub it away and to shy away and not let her see that. The instinct is to let her be that. The instinct is to allow her to come into that with me to see how she responds to that. Let her feel that. It's like tears are element. Tears are element responses of what is re- represented inside of you. Let's say that again. There's a lot of cars going by. <laughs> Every time a car goes by, I fuck up my words. <laughs> Gotta get better with that. Nor- normally these podcasts are running so late. So it's always pretty quiet. The tears. Tears do not... Tears... You know, people say that tears that, or the general concept of tears is sadness. The general concept of tears is sadness, something bad's happened, something bad is happening, and that this is something you don't want. You don't want tears. Why don't you want tears? Why, do tears, why can tears only come from one element response? Tears have many elements to them. You can cry out of joy, cry out of laughter, 
cry out of ecstasy, cry out of love. There's no reason why a man looking deep into the eyes of a woman that he's absolutely lit up into a fire-centric, this, this fire-centric place within him in which that it just feels like we are the fire together. There's no reason why that he couldn't let a tear out because of that, that very element, that very element of fire that goes, I love you so much. I love you so much in this moment I had to let this tear out because of the fire that you represent. It's like when you see her in the fire and you thought that the fire was only going to burn you, you let a tear out. There are some times where I've been in front of a girl and it's like, what am I saying there? It's like you thought that it, to be vulnerable with a girl, it was only going to burn you. But then you realize she was so accepting and so you let a tear out because of that acceptance. You know, it's a different element. It's not a sadness element. It's a relief element. So many different elements to why a tear should come out. So the summary point here is that to guys, let your tears out. Let your tears out. Don't hold them up. Don't try and brave them. You know, when you're having to put your dog down, let the tears out. I remember the first dog that I had to put down, I was trying to stand there like this stoic statue trying not to cry. Do you know how much that was hurting? Do you know how much more that hurt because I wasn't willing to allow myself to cry? I fixed that the second time. With the second dog, I just let myself cry unabatedly, un, uninhibitedly, non, no inhibition. Just let it all out as it's come down. I think part of the reason why emotional vulnerability is not there with masculine beings is that they have just not received it from masculine beings above them and ahead of them. I mentioned this on my Instagram story and I think it was where I wrap up this podcast. I've said that a few times, but it keeps going. Uh, I've never heard my dad say to me that I love you. I was just reflecting on him the other day. It was like a couple of weeks ago and I was just driving through uh, to the beach one night and I just thought, I'm not even sure how I got onto it. Oh, it's because I was having a discussion with a couple of people on the beach talking about them working through some pain and their relationship with their fathers. And I just remember just a few hours later, just in the car, just going, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard my dad say to me, I love you. It's like, but I've said it to him, but I've never heard him say those words. He's definitely said love him, like signed his name, love him. But I've never heard those words from him. And so like, how does that make you feel? It's like, it's okay. We don't have a very tight relationship. It'd be different if we lived every day with each other. But, you know, we don't have a physically tight relationship, but I feel like we do have a spiritually t- somewhat tight relationship. Like in terms of we still hold each other very high in each other's hearts, even though we don't have a very sh- strong connection in actual communication, which is, is very hard to describe. But It's like my relationship with my idea of him is stronger than my relationship with him, if you know what I'm saying. What he represents to me means more to me than what we actually have experienced with each other because we haven't experienced a lot of each other. One way of saying it. Anyways, I went onto Instagram after that saying, who have you not told I love you? Who have you not said I love you to? Because of uh, just that one thing of going, it's interesting. And even actually from my stepfather, I never once heard from my stepfather the words, I love you. It requires emotional vulnerability to be able to say from one man to another masculine being, I love you. And to mean it, genuinely, straight down the barrel, heart to heart. Yeah. I've learned from that and I've said it to my brother. I've said it to close male friends. You know, genuinely look him in the eyes and say that I love you. Feels good. Requires emotional vulnerability though. 
And this needs to be taught. This needs to be practiced. Because do you think it's a surprise that so many guys struggle to convey direct emotions to women that they also were not conveyed direct emotions from their parents. If you never heard I love you from your dad, direct down the eyes from the heart, how much harder do you think it is to be able to convey that to your woman? Direct down the eyes straight from your heart. And I don't even mean that as a confession of, okay, we're in a relationship. You know, many of the women that I say that I love you to, I never, some of them, okay, we could play word games with that. Let me say, let me try, let me try that again. A lot of the women that I say I love you to, we've never even been in a relationship. It's like the first time we meet each other is the way that I look at them in the eyes. Now, so a lot of times it will come out through verbal words, but they always knew it well before that. Just because of the direction, the way that you can look at someone, the way that you can feel someone, be in them, treat them, care for them. That's far more important, the energetic communication of love more than the verbal statement of it. That's just an end point. Right? It's the way that they treat you. So they treat you. Is it still important to hear the words? It is important to hear the words, but only founded upon the energy underneath them, the actions that came with them. Because you can, that doesn't work the other way around. You can have the words, but no communication of energetic love doesn't mean anything. You know what I'm saying? So, but I do acknowledge that the very statement of I love you is a nice endpoint. It's a nice endpoint. For example, if my dad and stepfather had routinely looked me down the barrel of the eyes, heart to heart, and conveyed the energy of love many, many a time. It would be a different thing. be a different thing. And so, but, um, you know, the, the reason why I brought up, I didn't finish it because we had my laptop freaked out. I'm just realizing I didn't bring up, I didn't finish the story of why I told you about why my dad shouldn't be alive. There's actually a reason and we're here now. <laughs> So as he's, uh, as he's in hospital right now and he had surgery on his uh, discs and thank- thankfully the surgery went well, apparently. Uh, I've been trying to call him on like a random mobile that my older stepbrother got him in hospital in Victoria. And I've been trying to call him, but it's been hit and miss. I haven't been able to catch him and he's been trying to call me back every now and again. And so finally today, just today, literally out there, it's just as I was cooking up my first meal, I finally got onto him. I actually, well, hang on, hang on. The previous day, or two days ago, I should say, Sunday, because that's Tuesday. Sunday, I did catch him on the phone, but he was barely audible. Uh, he, he could barely make up any words. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because he's super drugged up or if he's still just completely out of it. I don't know. But he could really only acknowledge what I was saying. And I really only just, it was really hard. Like I was just 20 seconds. I was like, okay, this is definitely not working. I can just feel him straining so hard to even say words. So I'm like, listen, it's okay. Uh, just call me back when you feel like you're ready or able to talk. Otherwise, just text me. We can just just text. And so that ended there. Then today, then today he called me back and I answered the phone and he was much more audible. He was actually able to form words this time. And so we had a little chop back and forward. I'm just saying, so yeah, Kai, uh, my old stepbrother's been filling me in. Kai's been filling me in on what's been going on uh, with the surgery and what's happening with my stepmom, my dad's wife. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how's everything going? He's like, yeah, surgery. You know, he's like, his words are kind of like this. You know, it's like really hard for him to form words. And, you know, it just got to a point again in the conversation. It's a lot better this time, but where I just felt like this is hurting me hearing him speak like this. It's like, I feel like I'm hurting him by having him talk. 
So I just, I was like, listen, just uh, when you feel ready to talk, uh, let's talk. But he'd been trying to call for it. He, he's the one who called me. So he's definitely felt somewhere in himself that he felt ready for it. It's just that it was actually very painful for me to hear him in that kind of pain, just talking. So, but I ended it by saying, but listen, um, just recover, you know, recover soon and recover best as you can. And just know that I love you. And I said, I said those words and I said, and, you know, and I love you, dad. And there was a pause. And he goes, he goes, you, you good boy, you good boy, you good boy. And I said, thanks, dad. And I hang on the phone. Now, some of you might think that's disappointing. To me, that was elating. That was illuminating. It really pumped my heart because I don't remember the last time I've heard my dad say that. And that for him was a big step. That for him was in direct relation to me directly saying that I love you. For him to just say, you know, really, and it wasn't just like, ah, you're a good boy, mate. You're a good boy. It wasn't like that. It was like, you're a good boy. You know, it was basically the energetic communication of love just without the actual word. So in that meant to me, as we were talking about before, and that meant more to me than him just saying the words, I love you, but without the energy. Like just going, oh yeah, love you too. And it's, no, no, this was like, you're a good boy as in, you're a good boy as a human being. You know, you're a good boy as who you've become. And it just, <laughs> you know, it's... It's nice. It's very nice. And so, my friends, that's the thing where we'll wrap up this podcast. We've been a lot of places here. It's been a very long session. I don't make any plans for these sessions. I really just roll in. The whole reason why I wanted to do this session was because of all the females on Instagram who have been messaging me saying, where are all the strong men gone? And I thought, okay, let's do a principle on masculine principles. Uh, sorry, let's do a podcast on masculine principles, the sound principles. And so let's just wrap that shit up. For me, the sound principles of masculinity being direct, congruent, authentic, covering of empathy always, and all the offshoots that come about of that, being a man of character, respectful, trust, inspiring that relationship of vessel-like nature within another human being. So you know that if I'm with this person, psychologically, I'm good. I say, I'm good. I walk down the street with them. I can be myself. I can be comfortable within myself to let go of myself, and I can trust that they will lead as well, that they'll honor their own end of the deal, and then honor their end of the bargain. I don't have to be watching myself, watching their P's and Q's. I don't have to be constantly checking them to see if that they are who they say they are. You just know they're who they are. You, know, you feel like you're around an invincible aura. Not that, that a gun couldn't blow a, blow a hole straight through them, that a bullet couldn't go through them, and not that someone could knock them out. That's not masculinity. Masculinity is a psychological state, right? And sound masculinity is a psychological state. It's not one form. It's not one shape. It's a psychological state founded upon principles being direct, upfront with people, being congruent in their external actions, internally, authentically right, moral, ethically right, what they, they do, what they feel is right in the moment, regardless of what the outcome may be. It's always based on what's right. Okay, guys, this is beautiful. My camera literally just filled up. All the memory cards are filled up because we've been going for like four hours or something. First time this has happened, actually, I've never tapped out all the memory cards. So as I was going to say, there's, this is basically the end. I was just going to say thank you so much for listening, watching if you're here on YouTube. I really appreciate it. And if you guys have any feedback, any big questions, please drop them down in a comment down below. 
hit the thumbs up if you enjoyed it, share it with friends if you feel like they might get some benefit. And I'm wishing you all the best on your journeys to mature state psychology, to traversing from boys to men. And if you're a girl watching this and you have a son, you know, to helping him on his way as well. I love you all. I wish you all the love, peace, and joy one could ever do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for diving into today's session. It was great to have you here. And I'd love your feedback. If you want to send me a message on either social media, on Instagram or on Facebook or through the website, all the links are down below. That'd be greatly appreciated. And if you would like to help to support the podcast, you can donate anything that you wish through the PayPal link or through boldojo.com. Again, all the links down below. Also, if you're not signed up to the free weekly email newsletter, The Bowl Sip, you can do so over at boldojo.com. Just a quick sip of Social Dynamics, a little cheeky article. It's free every single week. Comes out on Fridays, Australian time, and also some other sexy updates from the rest of the universe and any other things that I think you guys need to know about that will not get censored over on social media. If you'd like to book one-on-one coaching sessions, create action plans, and overcome limiting beliefs to help you move forward in your life across any area of the temple, whether it be purpose, physical, mental, or social development, you can reach all of that through boldojo.com. Send me an email there if you're not quite sure, but you can check out the Bowl Coaching Memberships or just once-off sessions. And I look forward to diving deeper with you. You can also pick up the Guided Meditation Eternal Energy on boldojo.com, a nice five-track, eh, we call it an album, but it's actually more of a course, just diving deep into who you are and evolving beyond. If you'd like to help support this podcast, you can donate anything that you wish through the PayPal link, which is paypal.me forward slash Adam Ui, A-D-A-M-O-O-I. Or also directly on boldojo.com in the boldojo podcast section, there's a direct link through the website if you want to donate through that as well. And anything that you guys donate is always most appreciated and just goes back to help supporting this show and everything that I'm doing here at The Bowl. So thank you very much. And finally, I wish you all the strength and power as you move forward in this life, not only learning how to interact better with other people, but learning how to interact better with yourself. Much peace and much joy. Ciao.